Hey everyone, this is your host, Cox, and welcome to another episode of Startup Conversations, viewed from the CTO, a collaboration between C-Table and CircleCI, where we sit down with some of the greatest CTOs in Europe to deconstruct how to build and operate high-performing technology teams. My guest today is George Schroth. George is a co-founder and managing director of Navis, the indoor mapping and positioning startup. Before founding Navis, George was a PhD candidate and postdoctoral researcher at the Technical University of Munich. George also served as a graduate visiting researcher at Stanford and worked as an engineer at the university's patented GPS integrity algorithm. DLR. So it's no surprise that in this conversation, George absolutely delivers. We chat about everything, including how the role of the CTO evolves over time and as a company scales, why George acts as a link between the engineering and product teams at Navis, what George looks for in new hires, key practices to create a high-performing environment for your team, the best indicators to measure performance, and why arbitrary metrics don't work, and much, much more. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. George, welcome to the podcast. Super excited to have you here. Thanks a lot, yeah, for having me here. Let's let's dive right in uh, and let's give the audience some context. So, what's the two-minute version of, of George and what you're working on? Definitely a dangerous question to ask that in two minutes, but I give my best. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm George. I'm one of the uh, co-founders of Navis and the CTO of Navis. And Navis' vision is really to bridge the gap between the physical reality and the digital world. That sounds a little bit abstract, so let me try to be a little bit more concrete on this. So you certainly know that uh, logistics, real estate, car sharing, all of this has been truly transformed through GPS and digital maps, right? So none of this would be really possible without this. And we take it for granted, of course. Um, but it's unfortunately limited to outdoors, right? You don't have the maps, you don't have GPS indoors. And Navis vision is exactly to make buildings digitally accessible. So here we focus on factories, construction sites, where the pain is the biggest. And we do this in three steps. First is um, that we capture the building in unprecedented speed, like um, maybe a satellite would use, just usually do this outdoors, even a plane. We go inside, of course, uh, around and around the building, and we are able to do this in millimeter accuracy. And we do this in hours where this took weeks in the past. So that's what we call reality capture, or some people may call this 3D laser scanning. So the second part is to bring um, this data, this powerful data, um, into a web-based platform so that people, pretty much anyone, can access these buildings, like search, annotate, collaborate, as if you were inside. Then the third part is that um, with Ivion Go, which is our application on top of Ivion, you can tell where you are. In, once you are on site. So if you're running around in a factory, you want to know where you are, this is what Ivan Go does, in addition to providing you this digital reality or digital copy of that building. So this actually where many years of research went in where we developed an AI that provides this blue, blue dot, sometimes it's called like that, um, indoors, but without the need of um, to mount beacons, any kind of infrastructure inside the buildings. And in fact, this is also where the whole thing started when I was working at the Stanford GPS lab back in 2007. Uh, where kind of the, uh, it was pretty apparent in how powerful GPS and maps are, and I was so convinced to bring this this uh, this value to the buildings in industrial applications. And um, yeah, the positioning te- technology was the first thing that we wanted to build, and so I decided to uh, form a research team at the Techn- Technical University of Munich 
under the supervision of Professor Steinbach, uh, which ultimately led them to, to the foundation of Navis in 2013. Yeah, and today Navis is already a team of uh, over 200 people, um, truly disrupted the industry. We are adding more than 5 million square meters of, of uh, space, of building space into the platform every month and serving really the largest enterprises. So it's been a ride, I would say. <laughs> Uh, I bet, I bet, and I was want to ask a bit about your your time at Stanford and sort of your yeah. the, and the Technical University of Munich. You've been sort of I don't want to say obsessed, but you've been focused on positioning, mapping, special recognition for the past thirteen, fourteen years. Why? <laughs> yeah, I think like I really got inspired. I had the honor to to work together with the the fathers, if you want, the founding fathers of GPS, and it truly took me away to see um, the power of it, right? It's just immense on how much this has impacted not just our daily life, um, especially during Corona. Imagine having a, whatever, food delivery, clothes delivery, all these e-commerce stuff, um, doing that by someone opening a paper map and looking <laughs> where they need to go, right? The, the creation of that map by itself is, is requiring an immense amount of technology to keep it up to date, and to know where you are. And um, then imagining where we are today, right? Even almost seeing the, the verge of, um, of autonomous driving and then in a building, right? Many of us just go into buildings that are a few hundred square meters in size, but think about a factory, a logistics center, all of these large buildings as well. And to do not have a map of how things are actually looking like and also don't have any way of positioning inside this building seemed odd and it's something that is very unlikely. This will stay like this. And I thought, okay, Someone will solve it. Let's try to contribute to this, right? Yeah, yeah. Crazy how we're used to just something as looks as simple as Google Maps, but we forget exactly. about the paper maps. <laughs> yeah, and I think yeah. about like how many satellites are up in the sky to help us with this, and that even um, like the stuff that Einstein did was necessary to bring this system up uh, and, and give us positioning, right? It's it's just incredible how much technology need to come together. But yeah, it's not not so much about um, the uh, for me at least. Um, the thing that we need to just enlarge the amount of technology, but just to in, yeah, enable these things that we take for granted inside a building. And it's something that we are already today doing to a fairly good extent for professional industries. Something I'm very curious about is, so you started Navis uh, about seven years ago, um, and now you're about seven, uh, 250 people. You raise about 70 million. So it's been a ride, as you said. So what I'm curious is, what was the role of the CTO back then and how has it evolved over time as the company uh, grew, especially for a company that sort of deals with hardware, right? Yeah. Which is kind of unique. Yeah, true. Um, yeah, I think like at the beginning it is like with probably almost all the founding teams on a, on a deep tech company is that you're kind of a little bit uh, like a nerd. You must be a nerd, right? You, you, well, um, and, and I'm probably not even... Um, the guy in the team that has uh, the deepest technical knowledge. Um, <laughs> and so in, in a sense, you really must love technology, right? For sure. And, and I think that is definitely true. Um, but then as always, it kind of um, transitions into more and more providing more and more directions versus concretely solving things by yourself. So yes, the role is drastically changing over the time. And uh, from working on algorithms and finding solutions it's becoming more and more like directions and empowering of people, right, to solve these problems. And in my view, it is fairly important um, to decide at a certain point in time whether the CTO should be more focused on the engineering world or, um, or how much at least on the product management side of things. Because I truly think that these two things very have to be very closely linked to each other. 
Um, there should be no question about um, that these two things must be working hand in hand to solve something, right? Honestly, if you look in the Silicon Valley of what made really successful founding teams, then it was that mostly those founding teams had at least one member that actually was able to connect the business with deep technology knowledge. And these people typically don't come without any technical background. You have to have a good technical background and then you have to grow into this or develop into this role. Um, but still, it is also for me hard to just be good on both of these dimensions. So um, for me, it really means today that I am trying to um, really try to bring these two roles together if you want. Like um, I'm, I'm responsible for the development, but also um, for the building of the product vision and strategy. So I try to do these two things. And um, in such, I try to orchestrate the teams, ensure the product management, product design, and product engineers work really hand in hand. And uh, for me, probably the biggest task is to develop a product a vision and strategy, and then to um, in, empower the people, provide the right um, team setups, the right directions, the right, um, um, let's say, yeah, concepts to, to execute on this. So you're, in a sense, the, the bridge or the connector between those two roles. What I'm very curious about is how do you translate your ideas uh, or your vision in terms that both technical teams and the rest of the organization can get behind? So I think it is, it is extremely important that um, you, um, you provide to the team as much context as possible, right? I think obviously I love to go back and say like, hey, why don't you just go and do this and that in the software, in our architecture, um, even in process, development processes and, and algorithms. But then I realized that this is not, I can do sometimes some these things, but this doesn't really scale, right? How could it? And so for me, it is more important to really, um, on the one side, really provide the context of what is the field, what is the, the landscape in which we want to solve problems, and then also help to identify the biggest and most valuable problems that we want to solve with knowing how, at least having an intuition of how much effort it is to solve them. And um, yeah, and then uh, basically empowering the team by making them as autonomous as possible to solve them without too many other um, yeah, strings attached. That's, I think, like what I need to do to help them to have impact. One thing I love to sort of spend some time on is, is hiring. So you could argue that uh, since COVID, talent markets have gone global. You don't have to compete just with people or companies in Munich, uh, but also in the rest of Europe or just the U.S., big tech, small startups, big startups. So things are, are starting to, to get interesting. So how do you think about hiring uh, and retaining talent in a world where COVID made global market, like talent markets remote? Yeah. Yeah. I think this is, of course, getting tougher and tougher. No question about that. And I mean, like um, where we are located, um, I mean, you could say, fortunately, uh, I would rather see it as, as, a, as a benefit. Next, like in the same street, Apple's just starting to um, build a big campus for them. Um, and so does Google come closer to us? <laughs> so you can imagine it's, it's coming from all the sides. And then, of course, um, this is not the only thing. Of course, we have tremendously um, cool startups among certainly also Pazonio, Alasco. So many of these people are actually friends of, of mine that I'm really just enjoying that this is really becoming more and more also um, yeah, a melting pot of the best talent. And um, I would say, first of all, it's great that we have it here, at least in Germany, that those companies are there and that we actually have the chance to build something together and just to evolve the world. And then, of course, yes, I would be, <laughs> would be not fair to say that I'm just 
happy for the others. Of course, we also want to play a big role there. And in such, um, the question is indeed, how can we stay competitive with them? Because there will be no way that you can, and we should not outperform Google in terms of salaries. I, I truly don't think this is a good idea. We want people that basically want, don't want to be a small, I, th I think you say like a small clock in a big, in a big machine, right? We want people that actually what they, what they do really makes a huge difference to the outcome of that company. And in contrast to many, maybe other companies, we are not trying to win a race of amenities, of nice to have things like, hey, we have five apples more than the others have, right? We have more muesli and more coffee and, and maybe even flexi more flexible, um, what do you call it, like uh, working hours or wherever you want to work. We, of course, do that as well, right? Um, to the degree that it helps our people and our company to achieve, and that is actually what is most important to them, an extremely nice or like an extremely strong impact into this into this world, right? So I think like these people that start with Navis, they are these are talents that really stand for the for what they are standing up are a vision that they truly believe in, an impact that is noticeable, and that they personally grow themselves. And these three things are I think like if you let's say if you ask someone what do you prefer, at least our people at Navis, right? Even more flexible work or working for a product that is truly inspiring and impactful, I'm 100% sure they take the second. And this is exactly what we need to do. We need to pitch our product vision. We need to show what we're really able to change or have the chance to, cha to change and to um, build in this world. And that is, I think, what differentiates us from other companies. Speaking of what people would prioritize, um, what are some of the core traits you look for in new hires? You describe yourself uh, as a team, right? As, as curious innovators, as proactive doers. So I'm wondering, uh, how, how do you think about that? What's sort of the commonality? Yeah, actually very difficult question, I'd say. Um, because every role is, of course, um, quite different. Um, but as a, as a common, I would say, what I'm looking for is the ability to very quickly exchange with this person. Um, to be able to really quickly understand what this person is telling me, to learn from this person, and the other way around that I can basically tell this person what I know, what I, what my thoughts are and to really exchange quickly and iterate on, on what we are thinking. And I believe this is very important these days, much more than in the past, because the world is moving so fast that stock knowledge, like just existing knowledge is, is important. No question about this. And even more important is experience. But what's even more important than that is to be able to quickly iterate and learn to develop something new. And this comes in a team usually, right? And so that exchange is for me a very, very high priority. And second, I'm definitely looking for energy, drive, and passion because this is something that you cannot teach, right? No way that you can teach everything, but not energy, drive, and, and, and this is really tough. And so if that is paired with the willingness to take ownership, like full responsibility, and the willingness to make this ownership successful, then I think I found a very excellent new member of the team. So what are some of the practices, principles, methodologies do you use at Navis to create a high-performing uh, environment? So I think like this, you could, to some extent, um, bring this into relation with our values. We call it rather guiding principles. Mm, and we took quite some effort to understand what they are because you, you kind of feel that, but you need to kind of put it in words to tell this also people that are recently just joining Navis and tell them, look, this is, this is valuable for us, right? How do you reflect on this? You don't have to agree to everything, but you should know uh, what is valuable to us. And, and part of this is, um, for instance, that we, we have hopefully the culture to iterate fast towards world-class results, we say. So 
We don't try to make, just live in the hopes of making a huge impact and only then show it to the outer world. We rather try to, to slice it down into smaller segments, realize that we can't know everything and rather that we have to bring it to the world to learn and iterate on it. And um, that we also understand that we will make mistakes on this way, um, but these mistakes should be in impact smaller by um, not going out with one big chunk. So that is one part. And I think also in development culture makes a lot of sense. The other part is about focus. And when it comes to high performance, then I would say it is about reducing work in progress. I think everybody knows this, that this is something bad if you have a work in progress. And um, I would not claim that we are perfect in this either, but I'd say this is something that at least I try to remember myself all the time, that we are just not getting faster by putting more in parallel, right? And this is yeah, much, much easier said than done. The third is actually that we want to work with the customers for the customer. So we call it empower, um, our, custom, empower our customers. And I think this is also so, so frequently said, but you really truly must believe in that, that you are not considering the customer um, as someone that is just finally should finally buy our product. And you try to convince them with all means, but you really are deeply caring about what you create as a value to them. Um, is it really helping them? Or are you just trying to fool yourself and the customer at the same time, right? Because this is probably not taking forever until either one of them found out that it's not working. And um, maybe as a, as a fourth one, what we call is um, we own what we do. So it's very much about ownership. I think if you want to build a company um, that scale, that's that's growing 100% year over year, then you have to let go of things, right? And it has a lot to do with trust. And if you, you need to empower the people, that is basically a very tough exercise sometimes. And on the other side, we need people that want to be empowered. This is also not for everyone, right? Um, but that want to have ownership and want that understand that ownership means responsibility and that this is really your own. You You must care about this. This is yours. You don't let this fall. You don't let this be ignored. You will definitely raise the hand if, if you feel you can't make it happen, right? And um, this is, I think, something that also very much reflects into engineering problems because then the people will not just do it even though they don't believe it's the right thing to do. They will only do it if they think, yes, this makes sense and we will actually deliver something that has an outcome. How often do you revisit or evolve these principles? I think like to some extent, we try to rather remember ourselves that these are our principles than to completely try to reflect on and uh, shouldn't we change them? Because to some extent, it's like a little bit like in, in, in many methodologies, there are times where you want to reflect and there's times where you want to just take what we, what we have, even in a scrum, right? In a, after sprint planning, you rather want to execute and not constantly rethink if the planning was done correctly. And I think like that is a little bit the principle here as well. So we had, um, the last time we did that was like, um, just before Corona, when we kind of really finished on that, we actually had to send out then or present this in the way, like after all the workshops we have done during Corona. And I think it was a great exercise as well to kind of see, hey, this culture is not um, only depending that we are physically meeting each other, even though I find this very important, but it's really something that we feel these are common terms we want to rely on to each other. And in such, I think... I would not feel yet the necessity to review it again, but I think it has to be also coming from when I realize maybe we come into a different stage of a company, we, we reflect on certain things have maybe proven to be not good for us, right? It should be not just reflecting where we are, but also where we want to go. Um, then I'd say this is something where we want to reflect, but it's not like a we want to reflect on this every half year if it's still true. It's rather like we want to feel that there's something that we need to improve. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So speaking of 
a high performance environment. Um, mm -hmm. What indicators, if any, of course, do you use to measure uh, performance at software teams? Yeah, that's a that's a very difficult question. I must say, I think like this. Generally, I think like on metrics, you can't do it right. First of all, I think like you can have, you can just uh, build build your best dashboard ever, and you will not know nothing about your company. And um, I think like metrics can't tell you um, a story, right? Only the team can. So I think like you first of all want to understand what you want to improve and why, and then I think metrics can be used as an answer to very specific questions, uh, very detailed questions. So um, to test hypotheses, that's I think like what you can do with, with metrics. And um, usually those hypotheses should support a specific business goal, right? So you, you wanna go in a certain direction. And this, so it should be only done um, as long as the questions and answers help to drive positive change. That I think like is a is a precondition for anything, and then yeah, I think like literature would say lead time, so from idea to delivered software cycle time, um, so how much time does it actually take you from changing the software to delivering the software? Team velocity is certainly something, or open close rates from from issue to resolution, um, as well as crash and failure rates. But these are all things I think you should only really implement and do if you actually have a have a hypothesis that you would like to falsify or verify, right? And, and then it makes actually sense. Um, in our specific um, company example, then it's very tough to compare teams against each other because we have built product teams. So since every product is different, they have different technologies, different software stack. And yes, there is of course synergies um, in, in many dimensions, but it's, it's impossible, I would say, to compare the velocity of one team against the other. Just the, the pure idea of it sounds silly because yeah, they have their own definition of sprint um, points or story points. And uh, in such, you can, if at all, analyze the trends, right? So relative within one, um, within one squad, um, but not across them. So I think usually what you want to do is um, to first of all, understand where you would like to be um, in terms of product outcome, and then to try to, to bring this down into certain pieces that need to work together um, to actually make that happen. And then um, if at all, you can maybe compare against competition. If you have direct competitors that have similar products and see how much they have actually achieved in what term of what time, and then on what, where you believe you have been stronger in product management, engineering, in um, focusing the business and so on. So yeah, again, I think there is no easy answer on which metrics to use. No, but that's what makes it interesting. So uh, thank you, for, thank you for, for, for sharing that. What's, what's keeping you up at night over the next 12 months or so? Yeah, definitely on how to grow um, this company 100% year over year. So um, I think that is just extremely um, difficult, right? I mean, everybody I think knows this, but like obviously it's easier with the first millions of revenue. <laughs> it's becoming incredibly harder the more revenue you do to grow. And um, yeah, it just requires to constantly rethink our strategy, right? You can't just continue... Um, to do what you have found to be successful last year. You constantly have to challenge this again. And I think like overall in this, a strong vision is of great help to stay on course and not to just jump for short-term opportunities, but also realize that sometimes you just have to um, invest into longer-term um, things, right? Because if you, if you want to grow by 100%, you feel like you need to take every straw that is on the way and just put it on a big, on a big pallet, right? And hoping that it's the twice as the amount of straws that you had uh, last year, but that's definitely gonna, not going to work, right? And you kind of 
need to reflect that in, in face of all the pressure that is uh, put on you. And yeah, that's what definitely keeps me up at night. Um, the, the, that saying, uh, how does it go? What got us here won't get us there. Yeah, exactly. I think this is unfortunately, um, not the full thing that you, that you need to have, right? You have to have new, new concepts, new, um, ideas and realize that you can't burn your team, right? It's just, you have to know what you have and then rather, um, take, take risks, right? You can't grow hundred percent without taking risks. Um, and you always have to accept that protecting what you already have is less important than building what you want to have. That's a perfect place to end on. George, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much as well. Great, great talking. Hey, this is Gans again. If you enjoyed this episode of Startup Conversations, please let us know by leaving an honest review. If you'd like to hear more conversations like this one, or find out more about the collaboration between SeedTable and CircleCI, visit seedtable.com forward slash conversations. That's all for today. Thanks so much for listening and see you next time.